we could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1-Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. The January 5th runoff in Georgia that will determine control of the Senate is right around the corner. Early voting is taking place, so if you've been waiting for the right moment to get involved, now is the time. Head over to votesaveamerica.com slash Georgia to find something you can do right now and sign up to Adopt Georgia, where they'll be sending new opportunities to donate and volunteer to support groups doing the work in Georgia between now and January. Hey, this is Duray. Welcome to Pod Save the People. So this is our last pod of 2020. Lord knows this has been a long year. We love you. We've been through a lot in this year, and we appreciate all of our listeners who have stuck with us since the pod launched in 2016. It's been a long four years. We'll be back in 2021. We're excited to close out the year and super grateful to have you as a listener. Now, on this episode, it's me, Kaya, Sam, and DR, as usual, talking about the news that you might not have known. And Netta comes and gives us an update about what's happening with the protests across the country. And then today we have one of our original guests back, Andy Slavitt. He used to run Medicare Medicaid, and he's here to talk to us about the vaccines. And then sit down and talk with New York State Senator Brian Benjamin about some of the bills that he's addressing in New York State and why they matter and why they're game changers in the landscape in New York State. We hope that you have an amazing holiday break. And if you have not already checked out the No Knock campaign, please check it out. It's endallnonocks.org. Remember, banning no-knock warrants is not enough. Banning no-knock warrants actually won't have a big impact because the police can take a regular warrant called a knock-and-announce warrant, and they can execute that in a no-knock fashion. So if we actually want to ban no-knock raids, we have to not only ban no-knock warrants, but we have to restrict the execution of all search warrants in a way that actually stops the practice. So endallnonox.org. My advice to close out 2020 is to make sure that you reflect on how much you persevered so far in 2020 and take those lessons with you into 2021. I'm excited for 2021. I'm excited for the rebound. I'm excited for the rebuild, for the rebirth. I'm excited for all of it. And all the friends and all the relationships that I've made in these hard times, I'm excited to carry them in to the new year. Thanks for listening and let's go. Hello, family. Welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Samson Yangwe at Samsway on Twitter. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And this is Dre at Diara on Twitter. All right, y'all. We're just rolling through, getting towards the end of this year. Thank goddess, we're almost done. 37 days left to you know who is out of office, respectively, (laughs) hopefully. Um, So, you know, there's no shortage of things happening, obviously. So we we, think one of the things that was interesting, I think a couple days ago, a story in uh, the Wall Street Journal, um, in which the writer berated Dr. Jill Biden for wanting to use the doctor since she received a doctorate. So I don't know this man's credentials. I didn't go into his background because I don't care. However, it just was so interesting to see the links that he went to to kind of disprove her credentials. Anyway, just thought it was a little refreshing wake up of misogyny that we got here. 
Um, but I don't know. Interesting to hear what you guys had to say about about this one. Twitter had a lot to say, obviously. So I thought it was uh, interesting would be a word, but it wasn't interesting. I actually thought that it was really ugly, frankly, that this man would come for Jill Biden in this way. She's been Dr. Biden for her entire career, and he effectively says because she has a doctorate in education that that's not really a doctorate. And I feel like I could mobilize an army (laughs) of folks who worked long and hard for their education doctorate to come for this dude. It's so fascinating that people feel like they can just say whatever they want to say out of their mouths about these folks. He's taught at Northwestern University for 30 years without a doctorate or any advanced degree. Well, we should talk to Northwestern about what that's all about. And we should talk to you about the fact that just because you didn't choose to pursue higher education doesn't mean that you should disparage somebody who has. And I think um, the way Twitter went after this guy and went after the Wall Street Journal my guess is that they will think twice before they go down this road again. It's just an unforced error. What I mean, what was he accomplishing by asking her to drop her honorific? She earned that honorific. And so you can call her Dr. Biden for the rest of her life because that belongs to her. She earned that right. It is, it's just another example of the patriarchy, the white patriarchy doing what it does. And I'm so glad that a bunch of people spoke up and said, we're not having this. You know, it's a it's a reminder of, you know, the fact that there are so many of these unqualified and mediocre men in these positions. Think about the Wall Street Journal has so much reach and there are so many voices they could have lifted up um, that wouldn't have used that platform to disparage uh, the first lady elect of the United States, Dr. Jill Biden. It doesn't make sense to me like why, you know, again and again and again, this isn't the first time that we've seen uh, articles like this, opinion pieces like this that really have no substance. There's nothing to them other than sort of a hit piece to disparage somebody. And I think that you know, hopefully the Wall Street Journal, based on the backlash that they're experiencing, a lot of it on Twitter, um, but hopefully outside of Twitter as well, it'll it'll force them to think differently about this um, and think differently about how they choose who should be actually getting a platform uh, on their opinion pages and who shouldn't. So a lot of us don't read the Wall Street Journal every day, but I hope that the women readers of the Wall Street Journal take note of how offensive this is. And I hope that they are raising a noise as subscribers to the Wall Street Journal because if they'll write this about her, they'll write, I mean, and it's not like, you know, when I first saw it on Twitter, I was like, oh, she, maybe somebody, I didn't even know who they were talking about, but I heard this conversation about a degree and I thought it was an honorary doctorate. And I thought that this was like, you know, every time, every year it comes out, people being like, don't call them doctor if they have an honorary doctor. And then I looked, I'm like, Dr. Joe Biden, she has a doctorate. Like, I, you know, this is actually like what a doctorate is. I did love that Northwestern actually released two statements distancing themselves from Epstein. So the department actually wrote, the department is aware that a former adjunct lecturer who has not taught here in nearly 20 years has published an opinion piece that casts unmerited aspersion on Dr. Joe Biden's rightful public claiming of her doctoral credentials and expertise. The department rejects this opinion as well as the diminishment of anyone's duly earned degrees in any field from any university. 
And you're like, thank you. Uh, and then the university actually put out, Joseph Epstein has not been a lecturer at Northwestern since 2003. While we firmly support academic freedom and freedom of expression, we do not agree with Mr. Epstein's opinion and believe the designation of doctor is well-deserved by anyone who has, a, who has earned a PhD in EDD or an MD. Northwestern is firmly committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion and strongly disagrees with Mr. Epstein's misogynistic views. Boom. Like There it is. No, sir. There it is. You know, in a moment where Trump has made so much okay, I hope that the that there's like a swift backlash so this stuff doesn't proliferate. My news this week, just when I was coming off last week with some positivity and how to fix America, <laughs> I'm going right back down to the dark place uh, with the Tampa Bay Times investigation called Targeted, where uh, the newspaper uncovered that Pasco County, that's the county that Tampa Bay is located in, um, that Pasco County's sheriff uses grades and abuse histories to label school children as potential criminals. And the kids and their parents don't know. Um, this, I mean, it just, as a former superintendent, it broke my heart because, in fact, um, I fundamentally believe that the police and the school system have a very unique and important relationship to have. But it feels to me, and it feels clearly the same way to the Tampa Bay Times, that this sheriff's office is out of bounds. They have a secret list of kids who they identify as kids who could fall into a life of crime based on things like whether or not there is any abuse at home, whether kids have a D or F in school, whether kids miss too many classes, if they're sent to the office for discipline, if they've witnessed or experienced household violence and things of that nature. There are 420 children on this list and it doesn't seem like parents or kids can find out whether or not they're on the list. And the, the sheriff actually um, takes pains to defend what they do. Um, they say, in fact, that the paper has misunderstood what they do. They call what they do um, intelligence-led policing, which uses data to help them do their jobs. Um, they say it's not predictive policing, where they use data to predict who would be criminals, except that's pretty much what the list says. The sheriff says that they use the list not to just identify people who could fall into a life of crime, but that they also offer mentorship and resources to students. And when asked, the kinds of resources that they talked about are pretty thin, like taking kids fishing and giving clothes to needy kids. If kids are needy and they need clothes, I don't know why you need to know that they got a D or an F or that there's been abuse in the home or what have you. They're using this data from schools and they're also using data from uh, the Department of Children and Families. And um, they also tried to say that it's not just for identifying future criminals, but for students who are at risk for victimization and truancy and self-harm and and substance abuse, but they didn't have any evidence to back up or any even citations in their manual that showed that any of those things were part of uh, the diagnosis. And so 
it it also came out through a Times investigation that they use grown-ups, criminal histories, and social networks to predict if they will break the law, even when there's no evidence of a crime. And in fact, that deputies harass people who have these kinds of backgrounds. Um, they go to their houses, they target them. And in fact, um, many of the people who have been targeted are young people. And there's a quote uh, where... One of the experts says sensitive information about kids should be in the hands of people who can offer help. Police are not in the business of offering help to juveniles. They're in the business of policing. And I think this is incredibly disturbing because, you know, if you look at the data, you can predict this, right? Who are the students who are twice as likely to be suspended or referred to law enforcement, according to federal data in Pasco County? Black kids and kids with disabilities, right? So this ultimately ends up being pretty discriminatory. And even the criminologists and the academics who are cited in the, the manual and in the, the police's defense, um, they say that you can't associate childhood trauma and criminal behavior, right? Um, they say that there is no, nothing, no data that you can put into an algorithm or a risk assessment tool that can predict who is going to to commit a crime. And so I think there's a big question around the legality of how this police office is using this data. Um, and in fact, after the time started asking questions, they started immediately revamping elements of the program to offer more support and to build positive relationships with students. But at the end of the day, I mean, this is a school district that is sending $2.3 million a year to the sheriff of Pasco County to support school resource officers and uh, to support the police in um, helping to keep schools safe. And that same office, the sheriff of Pasco County, is using that to target its students as criminals. It's depressing. It is heartbreaking. It is, you know, I guess in some cases not surprising, but... I think uh, we have to get on top of these kinds of things. And this is when the ACLU and anybody else who are experts in FERPA and HIPAA, the, the student privacy laws and the healthcare privacy laws, actually have a, an activist role to play in making sure that this doesn't happen in other places. So Kaya, this is um, dispiriting and disheartening and also like not surprising given what we know about policing in general and also in particular policing in Pasco County, where, you know, as you mentioned, and I think we talked about this on the pod a little while ago, you know, when the news first broke that they were engaging in this program that they call intelligence-led policing to essentially compile all of this t data and surveillance on residents that they're supposed to be serving. Uh, and use that data to essentially harass people, to show up at people's homes, uh, to try and discourage people from living there, to arrest people for technical and, and minor violations. What this sort of deeper dive uh, is discovering and uncovering is that they're applying this framework to kids, right? It is not just sort of adults. It, it is kids that they are applying this methodology to essentially identify and then in here they're saying they're offering kids help and this and that but I mean we already know how they're using this data in how they interact with adults and they were explicit in saying that their goal is to get people who are on this list to leave town and which which frankly sounds like the clan that is like their goal in using this data and now they're weaponizing those same systems against kids 
so, I mean, it's outrageous. It is probably not the only county in the country in which this is happening because we know that there's been a huge growth in the use of predictive policing technologies and other technologies that essentially take biased data and weaponize it and use it against black and brown communities. Uh, and I think that this is one of the most egregious examples of that. Sam, what you said about the KKK, I mean, it's actually what instantly came to my mind. There's a difference, I feel, between systemic racism discrimination and inequality and inequity and what is happening in Pasco County. Like, I feel like this is such an intentional abuse of power in targeting these young black and brown kids that it's just unconscionable in ways that can only be evil. And so I just started to do a little Googling about Pasco County. And I'm sure there's some lovely folks in Pasco County. However, it seems that there is a report in 2017 that the Ku Klux Klan was actually like, recruiting folks in Pasco County. Like they were, they were passing out literature that folks were finding. So much so it was reported um, on local news, Tampa news. Um, and then also just like considering like terror in the history of, of lynchings. Evidently there were 46 black folks lynched between four different counties in Florida between 1877 and 1950 and Pasco County being one of those counties. That link between the legacy of, of racism and white supremacy in this country and how it is so alive and well. And people that, this goes beyond like, you know, unconscious bias and, you know, we're well-intentioned but still discriminating. Like, y'all know what y'all doing down there. You know exactly what you're doing. You know, Sam, this is actually something that you helped us think about years ago on the pod when we talk about scientific racism. And I'm always... Um, amazed at the way that racism will justify itself. So, you know, you put in a spreadsheet, make a rubric, you know, it looks, quote, objective, and it is truly heinous. So when I look at the rubric that they had for what makes you at risk or off track, the sheriff's office says that if you commit your first crime in between 13 and 16 year old, you're automatically at risk. That's an at-risk identifier. If there's any arrest at all, at risk. If you are a victim of personal crime one or more times at risk, you're like, what is, what does that even, if I'm a, even though it was not your fault, right? You had nothing to do with it. If I'm a victim, if there's lack of supervision three to five times while you're in school, so they define that as truancy, curfew warnings, juvenile disturbances, or probation violations. Again, truancy is like, you know, we talked about curfew laws and truancy. That's a scam anyway. My favorite category is delinquent friends. If you have one or more delinquent friends, you are at risk. Oh, no, you're off track. That's actually worse than at risk. If you have been a part of two or more custody disputes, you're at risk. You're like... The kids ain't got, and the kicker is if that's you're- That's me. They describing me. You, oh, right. Everything you just went through. I'm like, that's me. That's me. That one too. Or I don't know if you, this applies to you, but if you are a certified gang member, then you are <laughs> You want to know what track. the certification <laughs> process looks like, right? Because that's what I what was is, wondering. What is the yeah, certification? I remember what I was is, watching um, one of these like uh, documentaries. It was about Death Row and Suge Knight. And then I think they had somebody who was from the LAPD who was like, well, we knew Suge was in a gang because- he wore red and he associated with other gang members. And I was like, those are the like those are the two things that you look for. Like you were friends with somebody who may or may not be in a gang and you're wearing the color red. 
and but, that is like but what Sam, puts you come on, on the Shook, list. Shook's not a good example. We knew, for us yeah, to I mean, Shook wasn't a good example. <laughs> That's fair. That is fair. But, he but, was actually. It turns you, out I'm a gangster. Shook was Sam a gangster. Sam is keeping it true. He's saying the rules is the rules, baby. The rules is the rules. You gotta give. I mean, you know, there was plenty they could have used for Suge. They didn't need those two. It right, was two people. It was right. two people I knew. If I ever saw them at a party, I had to go. Suge Knight and Mike Tyson. If I was in the same room as them, I was in the wrong place. Time to go. Sam said they could have made a better case. Not with that data. Yeah, the rubric could have been a little bit stronger. Right. And what's what's really wild is that the school district rubric is no better. So if you are one credit behind for attendance, you're at risk. One credit. I mean, what? If you have one referral in a quarter for office discipline, you're at risk. You're like, well, okay. And then, I mean, and we've seen this not just here in Pasco, but the treatment of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and, and how people weaponize those um, to mandate interventions for kids in the name of trauma-informed care is it's a tough nut to swallow because I think there are lots of people who are well-intentioned and want to provide the appropriate interventions to kids who are experiencing these traumas. But, you know, I've had a dust-up with a very, you know, renowned scientist who told me that stress levels in poor black kids were super high. And I said, well, go to Montgomery County because those rich white kids are stressed out too and their stress levels are high <laughs> and you're not, trying to, you're not out here trying to swab their cheeks like you're trying to swab my black children's cheeks. So let's cut this out. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I mean, there's uh, we have to be very careful about how we use um, this information on children. All right. My news today, y'all, comes from the New York Times. It's titled, Very High Risk. Longshoremen want protection from the virus so they can stay on the job. So we're days now following the FDA approving a Pfizer vaccine for emergency use, which we still don't really know what that means. Um, and again, with you know who's still in office for 37 days and not really knowing what the distribution plan is going to be, um, quite yet. Um, this article really spoke to me for a, a number of different reasons that you all will see, but but namely just like how we're going to prioritize need and what that means for people that should receive the vaccine and at one point, et cetera. So this particular article covers a perspective of port workers or longshoremen in New Orleans in particular. So for those of y'all who, like me, were asking, what is a port worker or a longshoreman? Um, let me tell you. So they are workers who load and unload freight from cargo ships to docks. And so, you know, cargo is imported and exported from all over the world and often includes shipping containers, which you probably have a sense of. Like, I've seen shipping containers now my whole life and never put any thought into what was in them and who was taking things off of them or putting things onto them. Um, and so shipping containers, barrels of oil, other substances, and even coil and grain sometimes are in those containers. So this article tells us that longshore work is exhausting. It often requires close contact with others. The trade, this is an important part, is essential to our economy. So longshore workers serving as a crucial link between moving goods from shipping vessels onto trucks and trains that send them to their final destination. Over 95% of overseas trade for the United States flows through one of around 150 deep water ports in the country, according to the Army Corps of, of Engineers. So two crucial insights that this article really highlights that were new to me 
um, is that longshore workers in particular have the highest risk of being exposed to COVID. Secondly, they are primarily black. Had no idea. So the article um, really expresses how COVID is working its way through the longshoreman community through stories of a couple of folks, namely um, Venetia Givens. So her husband thought he had a sinus infection. He went to urgent care and the doctors did not give him a COVID test, but sent him home with sinus medication. He went back to work and a couple days later got really ill and then was admitted to the intensive care unit and he didn't make it. Um, Around the same time, his childhood friend and fellow longshoreman, Wendell B. LaCour, died from the virus also. Then another friend and colleague at the docks, David Page, was out of work for weeks in recovery. And even the union's local president in New Orleans, David Maggi, also contracted the virus and spent weeks and weeks in the hospital. So Mrs. Givens talked about in the article how this was like, it was like a domino effect happening at this, at the New Orleans port. And she insisted that her son not go back to work. He's also a longshoreman. Um, She said, I lost my husband. I don't want to lose my child too. So what is going on here? (laughs) Um, First of all, I think it's just interesting for us to just like take time to understand like how things even arrive to us and that these ports, these major ports are in most major cities um, and most folks working at these ports are, are folks of color, uh, black folks. Um, and so there's a, an association of international longshoremen, and it's a union that represents about 65,000 longshore workers. And they've been lobbying both the federal and state government for support. Um, in a letter in September to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, Union officials asked that longshore workers be provided personal protective equipment, sanitizer, and rapid coronavirus tests, saying that the officials who operate the terminals were longshore workers and typically are at the highest risk and don't have the PPE they need. So at the federal level, the Transportation Secretary, Elaine Chow, has been reluctant to involve the federal government in protecting transportation workers from the pandemic, saying it's a labor management issue. Okay. The Department of Transportation does not make public health decisions. That authority lies with Human Health Services and the Center for Disease Control. This is what the Department of Transportation spokesperson is saying. Secretary Chow and the department have consistently and strongly encouraged passengers and transportation workers to follow the CDC guidelines, including wearing face coverings. Thank you for that helpful bit of information. Secretary of Transportation. (laughs) And so on Capitol Hill, uh, we're really not having any movement there. So um, there's a provision in the Invest in America Act. It's a transportation overhaul bill, and it calls for mandatory mask mandate for transportation workers, including longshoremen. But that bill, which has passed in the House, is stalled in Republican-led Senate. So what's happening is now it's too expensive for some of the smaller ports to actually provide PPE the, the larger ports and just the Longshoremen Association, et cetera, now they're, they're really saying that in order for them to give the PPE to everyone that needs it in a way that's going to protect them, it's going to be too expensive, so they're calling on the federal government to do so. Another piece about Longshoremen that I didn't know as well that also puts them at risk is the way they actually bid on work. So they all get there during the day because you got to kind of wait for the ship to come in, and so they bid based on seniority to get that piece of work. Um, but they have to stand basically shoulder to shoulder. And then they're kind of chosen based on seniority and how many people they need to bring those goods in from that particular ship. Long story short, with the holiday season and an increase in shipping, 
And without these folks having the PPE and rapid COVID tests that they need, it's basically a recipe for disaster. So who knows what's going to happen in the next couple months. But some experts are saying that if they don't get the PPE that they need, if these protocols aren't put into place, that basically a lot of longshoremen are going to have to stay home, which means there's basically like a backup in the supply chain, which means when you go to a store, there's nothing on the shelves. So just wanted to bring this to the pod because there were a whole bunch of pieces of information that I did not know. And so hopefully y'all got a little something out of it too. I will say, I honestly had no clue longshoremen, like I, you know, we've seen this profession and like TV shows, normally like the crime shows when like something comes on one of those big craters and it's like all the people on the dock and da da. But I was like, A, I didn't know this was still a profession like it is. And B, I didn't know the people were black, like literally no clue. And it made me think about how, how much a disservice we do to the history of labor organizing when all of labor becomes teachers or like- Or police. You know, the police, mm-hmm. right? It's like, mm-hmm. that is what the story of labor is. And then when we talk about 515, it's sort of like maybe hotel workers, right? Or like hospital workers I've seen sort of people talk about. But we think about the historic union organizing and blackness that like, we sort of only hear about when it is like, you know, we talk about Memphis and the sanitation workers, right? Or like, it's all these sort of like big, big moments as opposed to helping us see the arc that created space for black people to be in the labor movement at all. And like, this made me want to do more research and learn more about the history of organizing around blackness that I literally, I just didn't know. Like, this really blew my mind. And it was a reminder of how the people who are bureaucrats have a lot of power. So when the transportation secretary is just like, uh, not my involvement, it's a management issue. You're like, uh, I think if all the ports close down, that sort of is your problem, right? Like if, if all of a sudden, like there's no goods coming in or out of the country, that is sort of like a national issue. And you just not even thinking about it or caring about it or like, is really a disservice to people. And like, you're McConnell's wife. So you're like, you know, you're just- There there you go. This is nepotism at its finest. But like, you don't even pretend to care. I think that's the thing that is just so galling. So my news is about publishing. And in particular, a new analysis by the New York Times that looked at over 7,000 books published by the top five what they call the big five publishing houses. So these are publishing houses like Penguin and Simon & Schuster, Doubleday, HarperCollins, and Macmillan. And what they find in reviewing over 7,000 books that have been published since the 1950s all the way through 2018 is that during that time period, 95% of fiction books specifically that were published uh, were written by white authors. And so, you know, this is a a huge time period, 1950 all the way through the present. You would think, you know, maybe things have gotten substantially better more recently, but it turns out that in 2018, the most recent year they have data on, just 11% of books were actually written by people of color. Just 11% and 89% were written by white people. So I wanted to bring this to the conversation because, you know, we talk about diversity in a lot of spaces and a lot of industries. I think when we talk about books and fiction in particular, it's so important to to our ability to imagine a new world, to imagine our place in it, uh, and to see ourselves represented in new ways. And I think that, you know, seeing this data was just shocking the extent to which uh, people of color have been excluded from that process, excluded from having the opportunity to produce uh, and have a platform through these big publishing companies to share those stories. 
The list is one of those things that is really interesting. Uh, it was this year that Octavia Butler actually hit the New York Times bestseller list for the first time, which is sort of wild. It also is a reminder that the list is about first week sales, right? If you, you know, if you go on a book tour, you want to get as many sales the first week. You don't want people to necessarily buy books on the book tour because that is normally going to happen after the week. So it's like a whole, it is a whole process to figure out like what is the way that you do it or how do you do it or like, you know, around the list. The thing that's also interesting about this, you know, I think about when I sold my book, I probably met with 16 publishers and only in two meetings were any black people, which was also wild. Uh, and it was like, we set a record at CAA, you know, it was like a whole thing, but it was two black people. You were like, wow, this is a very different way. And there were a lot of people who were like, I've worked with black authors, right? That was their selling point to me. And I'm like, well, you know, I, this is, and I went with one of the black uh, people, uh, Georgia was incredible and a great editor and skilled in, in a host of incredible ways. And she was great and gave great feedback, all that stuff. But it was like, wow, it was one of those things to see it up close and personal. It also is interesting. I think about, um, and this is not a critique of, of any books right now, particularly, but I am interested in the genre of writing books to white people about race. And like, what does it mean when those are the popular texts about race? These are like not books for black people. Uh, or they're like not literally not intended for black people, but it's like to help white people process the moment. Uh, and it makes me think about what happens to all of the amazing texts uh, that are black people, right? That are like for black people, written by black people, the intended audience is black people. And it makes me think through those things. So that's what, that's what your news brought up to me. So my news is sort of zooming out. This is something that uh, was just fascinating to me. We talked at the beginning of the pandemic about some of the racial history of black people in pandemics and, and what that looks like. But this was about sort of the, the legacy of pandemics in the United States and what they've done to our homes. And I just wanted to bring some stuff here. Have you ever heard people talk about Project Heat or like the, the old school radiators that are like the steam radiators and they are hot to touch? If any of you have ever had one or been around one, you know that that is like the hottest heat you have ever. You're like, I didn't even know heat inside a house could be this hot, you know? Uh, so hot that you can keep the windows open and still... Your room is totally warm. And what's interesting about it is that reading about it is that the last pandemic the, in 1918 and uh, the Spanish influenza really changed the landscape of like how we built homes in, in so many places. And those radiators, like those old school radiators, were meant to be able to heat a room while the window was open because the idea was that uh, fresh air needed to circulate so that when the pandemic was raging, you weren't like just circulating stale air. And the legacy of that is that, you know, in places like New York and public housing, you still have a vast majority of buildings with these really old radiators that are very hot. If you've been around one, you know that like when the heat comes on, it is heat and it is heat for a very long time, whether it's cold outside or not. And then the heat goes off, uh, but it is hot, hot. And it was really interesting to me because I hadn't even thought about the way that the pandemic just shapes so much of how uh, the world moves. Uh, also, things like linoleum uh, on floors, like white tiles and kitchens came from a pandemic era when people needed to clean the surfaces and the easiest way to clean surfaces was when they were white. And I just hadn't even like thought about that, you know, like steam boilers, like all those things 
that you find are real challenges. And Kai, I don't know about the buildings in DC, but definitely our buildings in Baltimore with these ancient steam boilers. And I hadn't even thought about this idea of like, we were actually building buildings so that they could withstand a pandemic, you know, a hundred years ago almost, and how we actually haven't updated technology in the modern day, given what we know. And the article goes on to say that roughly 80% of residential buildings in New York are still heated by steam. Uh, and surveys with tenants found that 70% are chronically overheated in winter. So people, you know, this is actually a waste of energy in a lot of places, but the design actually came from pandemic time. And like, that was fascinating to me. I was like, this is really interesting. As somebody who started her life in the projects around radiators that, <laughs> that really, I mean, that did this, it actually helps me. It helps my unbelief because I just thought they were trying to take poor people out and burn up little poor black children where I come from. Um, but but knowing that actually <laughs> that there was actually a reason we, had a, we my parents still have radiators we grew up with radiators too something. but the clink clanking is what always got me that was oh the most, goodness they can get as high as they but it's just that night you're trying to sleep and it's just bang 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 that's my my house was built in 1929 I have radiators all over the place and I'm thankful for them actually because now you can actually control the heat right like you get your plumber to come in and fix it and there's a knob that actually regulates the heat in the right way but honestly when I was little I thought this is so dangerous for kids these radiators I mean I've been burnt by a radiator before and they are serious but who I think I might have slept a little easier if I had known that the point was that we could keep the windows open and have fresh air coming around because of, you know, pandemics. Um, I thought some of these things were just really interesting to understand the history of, like closets. Yeah, because I feel like black people don't know that, Kaya, because I feel like your mom would be like, stop letting the heat out. Put the oh, windows yes, for down. sure. Absolutely. And we in there sweating like pigs. Are you kidding me? <laughs> But closets and the the how closets came to be because these big armoires, which is where people used to keep their clothing, collected dust. And dust, of course, was believed to have carried germs. And so, I mean, there were lots of from the white subway tile, fascinating, you know, so that people could spot dirt and grime and so that it evoked feelings of a clean hospital. I mean, these were just very interesting um, little tidbits that you generally don't know about. And so I really enjoyed this article. Thanks, DeRay. Don't go anywhere. More Pontiac the People's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Andy Slavitt is a friend of the pod. He used to run Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in the Obama administration, and he's the host of the podcast, In the Bubble. We love In the Bubble. That's on the Lemonada Media. We caught up this week to talk about America post-election, the pandemic, and I wanted to understand more about the vaccines. Here we go. Andy, Andy Slavitt, uh, thanks so much for joining us back on Pod of the People. You are an OG guest from the very, very beginning. Thanks for coming back. I feel like I'm home. <laughs> now... What, we've had you on before to talk about COVID. What, how is the COVID response going to look differently under the Biden administration? And I ask because in some ways it feels like the states have sort of done their own thing and it, and it doesn't look like that's going to stop. It looks like the vaccine sort of already vaccinating. So like what will be different besides not having somebody who's just lying to people? Yeah. I mean, look, I think you're right. You have to start with honesty. I think we'll get the straight story. Number two, uh, I think we'll see the bully pulpit be used more frequently and regularly to tell people, look, here's what we should be doing and try to unite people. Number three, equity. There's going to be a real focus on every decision being made with regard to how do we make sure the people who are getting hurt the most, who are uh, in most vulnerable situations, are getting taken care of. Uh, you know, they've appointed a, a head of health equity, um, which is, I think, a, a brilliant move, who's going to be involved in every decision. And then finally, just plain competence. People in their in the government who know what they're doing, who are delivering, who are coordinating with the states and getting vaccines distributed. Those are, I think, going to be things that will be pretty noticeable by the time you get through the first hundred days of the Biden administration. Now, what about the vaccine? You know, I've seen a lot of people, people I respect, who are nervous about taking uh, the vaccine. What's your read on that? There's a reason people got nervous, because Trump started to politicize the vaccine. The truth is, the United Kingdom just approved the vaccine before we did. That should give us a great deal of confidence. These are very good vaccines. This is not about politics. They're going through very rigorous processes. And the vaccine data, quite frankly, is just incredible. Uh, it's beyond the wildest dreams of what you can hope for. I mean, vaccines, in my opinion, are some of the greatest inventions known to man. Viruses are always going to be out there. But, you know, if we'd had an AIDS and HIV vaccine in the late 80s, early 90s, we would have saved millions of lives and so much um, suffering. Uh, so we're so lucky to have this, and I hope people will take the time to talk to the people they trust, because I think that we're going to find that this is a vaccine that is going to do a lot of good, and I'm grateful we have it. We have more than one. Now, when you say more than one, what are the differences between the vaccine? Like, why is there not just, like, one vaccine? Why is it that people might be able to choose, or, like, do you choose? How does it work that there are more than one vaccine? So 
you know, essentially they basically didn't know what was going to work. So, you know, more than 100 companies started working on these vaccines early. And there's some important differences. There's something that people may have heard of called messenger RNA as an approach. It's a brand new way. We've never done a vaccine that way before. Two of the vaccines that are going to be approved early, one by Pfizer and one by Moderna, um, use this platform. And every one of them has advantages and disadvantages. I mean, the challenge with some of these vaccines is you need a booster shot about three weeks after your first one. So that's not great because it requires people to come in twice, but it's 95% effective. And, you know, they didn't know which vaccines would come over the line, but the good news is we're going to need all of them. We're going to need every one of them because we've got to vaccinate billions of people on the planet and hundreds of millions of people in the country. So every single one that's approved, uh, we're going to need. Now, how will we choose? You know, nobody's going to force anybody to take a vaccine, but very likely, particularly for the people that are starting to get them earlier, um, the vaccines that are approved first, that are manufactured first, those are the ones that people will be near people. And the vaccines are very, very similar. So, you know, I don't know the people that it makes a lot of sense for people to shop or hunt for the, for the one that, that they prefer uh, because they're going to have very similar effectiveness rates, very similar side effects, et cetera. Is the vaccine going to be free or is, are people like, how are people going to get the vaccine? Like, do you just like go to uh, urgent care? Is it just, are there going to be pop-up clinics? Like, what does that look like? Are there going to be enough vaccines? So the vaccines are going to roll out in waves. And so the first wave of, of people getting vaccinated are going to be healthcare workers and people's long-term care facilities. Uh, and that, that's about 22 million people. So that's where the first, you know, called 44 million vaccines will go. Because, again, each person um, is recommended to have two vaccines. Then they're going to go to, in some order that the CDC is going to recommend, that it's going to begin with you know, school teachers and essential workers, uh, at-risk people and seniors. And so people will get um, notified. The most common place people will get them will be places like CVS or Walgreens. Uh, there will be hospitals. Uh, there will be other centers. They're determining kind of where that distribution goes. Some of these vaccines require that they be stored in very cold temperatures. So it's not like it's easy enough that you can just go to any doctor's office if they don't have the refrigeration capability. There will be some of that that's factored into the logistics. My guess is that over the course of the first six months, virtually everybody, if not everybody, by the time you get to May or June, will have had a vaccine you know, available for them to be able to put into their arm. And, and what about the side effects? You said they're similar? The side effects are exactly what you'd hope for. They are, uh, you'll see like a little inflammation of the arm. You may be tired. You may feel a tiny bit feverish. That lasts no more than 24 hours or 48 hours at the outset. Those are the signs of a vaccine that are really good. No, nobody wants anybody to have to suffer through a swollen arm. But what that indicates is your body is kicking off an immune response which is exactly what the vaccine is supposed to do. And what that's doing is it's giving you immune response in your arm uh, where you want it, as opposed to where uh, people who get sick with COVID uh, would, would get that inflammation. So people will should experience a little of that. It shouldn't be concerning. It's just to be expected, and it's a sign that your body's working right. And will kids take it? So not at first. At first, it's going to be 16 and older. That's why it's really important, uh, Duray, for us to vaccinate teachers early because kids will not be taking the vaccine first. Pregnant women will not be taking the vaccine. So it's really, really important that all the rest of us, because we come in contact with kids, we come in contact with pregnant women, do take the vaccine so that uh, we don't put them at risk.
And what about prisons and jails? I've heard that some places are going to do some early doses there. The way it's going to work is uh, there's an organization called the ACIP, which will make a recommendation on who gets vaccinated when. They haven't done that final determination yet. Once they do that, those recommendations will go to every state governor, and then every governor gets to um, accept or reject those recommendations. So what you could see is it's done differently in different states, and some states may put people in jails and prisons higher on the list, and it could be January, February, or March. Other states could put them lower on the list, March, April, May. So it'll, it'll be the difference between a couple of months. We all should be making the case loudly that anybody who is at serious risk needs to get these vaccines earlier, and people who can afford to isolate, they live in an apartment or alone, or they live in a house, we should all be getting those vaccines uh, after everyone else does. And how do you feel about uh, Vivek being the Surgeon General again, and and the team that he's put in around like the COVID task force? Are you is this a good thing, or are we still nervous about something? Uh, and then, what's going to be the lingering effect of the Trump decisions on what's happening? You know, I think about each of these appointments, and, and each of them are people that I know between pretty well and very well. And I think they send all the right messages, and they're the right kind of people. Everybody's 180 degrees from the Trump people. Um, Javier Becerra, Latino, second generation American, uh, is currently the the head of the Justice Department in the state of California. He's been at the lead of fighting for the ACA. He personally believes in single-payer. The image I have in my mind is someone who equates health and justice together, that you can't have a just society until everybody has health care and until people are treated fairly. He's someone I know pretty well. It's such a beautiful message, in my opinion, um, and so different from the message we get today, where you know the trans community gets discriminated against, BIPOC community gets discriminated against. That's just part of the design. That's not what happens. It's just part of the design. You have to fight against that, and and I think Becerra will do that. In terms of the COVID team, Vivek Murthy, I'm grateful he's playing this role again as what we call America's doctor. Vivek's a, a really good guy, a really sincere guy, someone who cares deeply about people. He's deeply empathetic, and so I think we'll be great in that role at just explaining things to the public. And the person who's going to run kind of as a quarterback of the response is a guy named Jeff Zients, who I worked with when I was – in the administration, and he's a great quarterback. He's very organized. He's very disciplined. He's very focused. He's a good listener. He takes all points of view in. He makes quick decisions. So I think he will help make sure that we're running things on the battlefield uh, pretty well. So I'm I'm really thrilled with the people that have been chosen so far. Now, what should we be looking for as Biden and Harris take over? What are the questions that people should be asking or what are the things that we should be paying attention to, knowing that it'll be night and day from this current administration? Well, look, I think we should have an expectation that the new administration is more than not Trump, that they don't just yeah. you know reverse his bad policies, but they heal the things that are, are broken. Duray, you, you and I know each other. We talked about these things before. There's a, there's a lot about the healthcare system that was unjust before COVID. There are a lot of things that didn't work before COVID for many, many people. And now, uh, during COVID, they became more acute. People of color dying, uh, older people in nursing homes abandoned, people with mental health issues uh, in crisis, all of these things. But they're just simply accentuations of trends that existed before. There were kids that didn't have Internet at home before COVID-19. They didn't have Internet during COVID-19. And the message is it's all up to us whether they have Internet after COVID-19. And likewise, whether or not people have access to health care and so forth. 
one thing I've learned is, and I've learned this from a lot of people, including you, if you don't actively fight, then people will, will recess towards the comfortable, and the comfortable will be very unequal system. What we can expect from Biden, Harris, and the team is that they're fighting against that every day and making progress against that. And it's not easy, it's not overnight, but, you know, we should expect to have people in the government fighting for us for once, and that change is just going to feel really different. Cool. Well, we consider your friend of the pie. Can't wait to have you back. We will stay tuned to what's happening with the vaccine. And as always, you teach us a lot. Yes, great to be on. Thank you for having me. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. And now the check-in with Netta to give us some updates on what's going on with the protests around the country. Hey, everybody, it's me, Netta. Thanks for tuning back in. New weeks, new news, old dynamics. I had a lot of puppy playtime at the park this week because the district enjoyed some lovely weather over the weekend. And I am taking on new responsibilities in my work life. And I'm going to be so honest, it is so stressful. My brain hurts so bad. (laughs) I don't know if anyone has ever even felt that way. But yes, sometimes my brain just hurts from thinking too much. Um, yesterday I went to run an errand and I returned back home to a very happy sage sitting in the middle of my living room floor, just having the time of her life, little tail wagging. And y'all, I was frightened because when I left the house, sage was in her playpen. Sage, how did you get into my living room? Sage. So sure enough, I went to go investigate and this dog has figured out how to get out of her playpen and was just having the time of her life with her leash and her harness and a box that she pulled out of somewhere. I had no clue. Um, so yeah, I, I, she really got me yesterday, y'all. So after the shock wore off, I just had to scoop Miss Daisy up, put her back in her playpen securely, clean up all of her mess, and just show no emotion because, woo, that was a wild one. <laughs> woo, okay, so that's personal updates. And here's to the news. In Ohio, Jason Mead, a sheriff's deputy, killed an unarmed black man last week. The names change, but the stories always feel the same. 
23-year-old Casey Goodson Jr. died after suffering multiple gunshot wounds to the torso in Franklin County, Ohio. Police say they allegedly saw Goodson driving while waving a gun. But according to the NPR report, no official reports said Goodson was armed at the time of the shooting. Goodson's family has rejected multiple accounts of the shooting. Family lawyers told CNN with Meade's statement issued nearly one full week after he killed Casey, it is critical to note that this is a classic defense often claimed by police after they shoot and kill someone. It is also critical to remember that often the evidence does not support these claims. The Franklin County Coroner's Office has ruled the death a homicide, but that ruling doesn't automatically trigger criminal charges. Now here's where things get extra suspect. There's no body camera footage of the shooting. No other law enforcement officials were witnesses. Casey's grandmother and two small children did witness the shooting. Casey was also licensed to carry a weapon and carrying a concealed weapon is lawful in Ohio. The officer who fired the fatal shots was said to have just finished conducting a search for a violent fugitive, though Casey was not the subject of this search. Like that Sunshine Anderson song, we've heard it all before. I don't know about you, but I'm super tired of saying justice for and then inserting the name of a young black man or a young black woman who has been taken from us too soon. You know what justice would be? Not having to know people's names in the first place. Casey Goodson Jr., like Breonna Taylor, like George Floyd, like Mike Brown Jr., are all people that should have lived long, anonymous lives unknown to most of us. Instead, we know them, and Casey Goodson Jr., for all the wrong reasons. No matter how you feel about people who want to divert resources from law enforcement, this is why people make those demands. And if you're reducing these demands simply to slogans, remember that these calls come after someone has lost their life or been traumatized at the hands of law enforcement. These aren't rhetorical debates. This is a life and death matter. In some hopeful news, incoming Los Angeles County DA, George Gascon, has publicly committed to ending cash bail for any misdemeanor, non-serious, or non-violent felony offense. In a series of tweets on December 7th, the day that he was sworn in, he drew from his experience as a former police officer, concluding that the criminal legal system is fundamentally broken. In addition to announcing that he's ending cash bail for nonviolent offenses, Gascon said he'll end the practice completely on January 1st. So, Happy New Year's? But in all seriousness, this is a pretty big deal. For years, activists and organizers have pushed DAs to boldly reimagine what public safety looks like. L.A. County is one of the largest counties in the country, and what happens there could make waves across the nation. We have a long way to go before we have a truly equitable criminal legal system, which now functions on the backs of black and brown bodies. But this is a step. While most of the country has moved on from the election, Donald Trump and his minions are determined to raise as much hell as they can before they leave. Last weekend in D.C., the Proud Boys were spotted snatching Black Lives Matter flags off of black churches in the district. I want to repeat this again. Last weekend in the District of Columbia, the Proud Boys were snatching Black Lives Matter flags off of black churches in the city. And not only were the flags pulled down, they were burned. Are you going to tell me that this is economic anxiety or are we ready to call a thing a thing? This is racism. And I don't care how many mascots of color the Proud Boys prop up, they're still racist. So let us recap. Proud Boys enter church property, 
disrespected the church grounds and the spiritual sanctity of the space, violently removed a fixture and documented evidence of their crimes. On the 13th of this month, the Washington Post reported nearly three dozen people had been arrested in connection to the violence stemming from this sad guy's protest. Does anyone else see an issue here? The pastor of Asbury United Methodist Church issued a statement following the hate crime because that's what this is, saying it was reminiscent of cross burnings. This is another example that even our most sacred spaces aren't safe from racism. The silence from certain faith leaders is also deafening. But unfortunately, the silence is all too typical. Those who preach from their pulpits that all lives matter somehow find themselves without words when Black lives or Black churches are the targets. Maybe in their minds, this is not a crime because Black people and Black worship spaces aren't deserving of protection. After all, this is the country that designated us as three-fifths of a person. The old ways of thinking suddenly don't feel so old anymore. And the past, it feels very present. I'm ending this week on a positive note. Miss Gloria asked us to fight on. A lot of us have seen this iconic picture of a Black woman shoving away a rifle from a National Guardsman during a protest back in the 60s. The Washington Post caught up with a woman recently. Her name is Miss Gloria Richardson, and she is now 98 years old. She lives in New York. And if you think time has dimmed her fire, think again. She told the Post, until everyone is on the same plane, then the fight continues. This fight is still the same fight as before. Amen, Miss Richardson. Amen. See y'all next week. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, I'm sitting down with New York State Senator Brian Benjamin to discuss his work representing New York. He represents Harlem and some of the amazing legislation he's working on that would be a game changer in the state of New York that would be a model across the country. Let's go. 
Senator Benjamin, thanks so much for joining us on Pod Save the People. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be on Pod Save the People. You know, we don't normally have local politicians on, partly because you represent a slice of the world. But one of the reasons why we invited you is because you are one of the few political leaders we've seen at state levels who are willing to fight some of the big fights around criminal justice. And you can help us understand better why state legislatures really matter in the grand scheme. But can we start with how you got to the state house? Like, what was your, did you always want to be a state senator? Did you like fall into this? Is somebody convinced you to run and you thought it was a good idea? Was it a bet? I don't know. Like, how did it happen? (laughs) Yeah. So no, growing up, my mom and I used to watch Meet the Press together every Sunday morning. Um, She worked at the labor union. I was very involved. I probably went to every single Democratic convention right up until this last one. And I always wanted to be involved politically. Never knew if I would actually run. uh, But a couple of things happened. One, uh, when then-Senator Obama ran for president, I really felt like I think I might want to do this. And so I decided to leave the job I had at the time. I was an investment banker at Morgan Stanley. I left the job to then come to Harlem to help a friend of mine help build affordable housing in the community and got involved in the local community and joined the community board. And, you know, over a couple of years, I thought to myself, you know, if at any point something opens up, I'd be interested in considering it. Because of term limits, I believe that that would have been the city council seat. So I was looking to run for that. But then when the city council seat opened up, then Senator Bill Perkins decided to run for the city council seat. And given his, his popularity, I thought it would be a better approach for me to run for the Senate seat behind him. And that's what I ended up doing. And quite frankly, because I'm so interested in ending mass incarceration, I found going to the state would have been just as appealing as going to the city council. And how has it been in the state Senate? Like, help people understand, like, why, what, sort of what's the power of the state house and what is specifically the role of the, the state Senate in New York? The state legislature runs the state. You know, a lot of people interact with their local municipality, like the city of New York or Buffalo or Rochester, their local municipalities. But all laws manifest right from the state. So, for example, education, every single decision manifests from Albany. We give the mayor mayoral control, but that's something that we give the mayor. Criminal justice, determining sentencing, whether you go to jail for something or not, whether you have bail or you don't, what is the... um, the policies around the climate change, et cetera. I mean, every single issue you you have in the state, the state actually has the governing power. So for me, it's been very important. Also, I've been learning about other issues that I wasn't as familiar with um, on the state level, but I've been really able to, like, really lean in on the criminal justice reform. You know, I was very involved in the conversation around bail, very informal conversation around speedy trial, discovery, very active around trying to get New York State to finally fully divest from private prisons. I pushed the state control to do that, carrying a bill right now to consider lending two private prisons from New York State banks, um, uh, prohibiting that. So you, you, you honestly, the, the state legislature with the governor really has the full power on the state. And, you know, I know many of us remember when Obama became president, a lot of us were so excited. And what a lot of the Republicans did particularly around the Tea Parties, that they went and started locally organizing around their state houses so that policies that were happening federally, they could undermine them on the state level. And that's the power that we that we have as well. Can you help us understand the timeline? So unlike city councils, it seems like city councils across the country meet often. They meet like every other week in some places, once a month, but it's like a, they are sort of always on. 
the state house isn't always technically on. I guess you're always you're sort of like always in your role as long as your term is, but uh, you all don't make decisions for twelve months. So how does that work? Does that mean that like you know once one session ends that like it's sort of a wrap or like I don't know? Like can you help us understand the timing? Sure. So the way it works is, and we just actually got our calendar for the upcoming session, the upcoming session calendar. We generally have scheduled legislative days between January and June, um, usually resulting in about 60 to 65 actual physical days of session. We also have the ability to call for a special session at any given time. So, you know, let's assume, for example, uh, there's some crisis or something important that we feel like we need to go pass legislation on. The Senate leader and the speaker can call us into session at any time for any particular purpose. So we are, we are on calendar days, um, January to June, and then on request from July through December. So that's just on, your legis- on the legislative front. In the meantime, you know, we have working groups. We're doing a lot of activity with constituents. We're figuring out problems. Like, for example, right now, we are actively looking at the conversation around uh, housing the eviction moratorium, uh, what we should do around that, um, how much um, taxes, revenue we should raise. We are actively um, looking at that right now, uh, and that is something that we can decide, you know, hey, before the end of the year, we will go back and have session, and in session, do X, Y, Z issues. So that's sort of the framework of it. You know, we don't have calendar days all year, but we're actively working all year. It's just when we actually physically go into session, it's primarily between January through June. What does it mean that you're a senator and not a representative? Does it matter? Are, are they essentially the same two bodies, but it's just different terms? Like, how does, what does that mean? We have um, the Assembly, which is 150 members. Um, they almost are like our House of Representatives. And then you have the Senate, which is 63 members, and we're like, for lack of better terms, the U.S. Senate. We, we have the same term. So unlike in um, D.C. where the, the House members have two-year terms and the Senate have six-year terms, in New York, the House and the Senate both have two-year terms. So we are every two years running for re-election. So the difference is if a bill passes the Senate and does not pass the Assembly, it cannot move forward. If a bill passes the Assembly, doesn't pass the Senate, it cannot be, move forward. The only way bills actually get passed and enacted is that it has to pass the Assembly and the Senate, and it has to be the same bill. And that same bill then would be provided to the governor, and the governor will either accept it as is or uh, reject it or offer chapter amendments that, if we agree on, could then have the bill become enacted. Got it. When you originally ran, you ran on this issue around closing Rikers. And since then, you've done a lot of work around criminal justice. Can you talk about why Rikers was your entrance to this work? Yes. The reason why I started with Rikers is because Rikers, for me, represents one of the biggest issues that I have with our system, and that is that we over-incarcerate. At the time when I ran, if you look at the number of people who are in Rikers at an enormous cost to the city, while being there in a large in a number of cases for crimes that they weren't convicted of, to me, and in a number of those cases, uh, nonviolent offenses, to me, Rikers represents uh, one of the worst parts of our system. 
And when you compound that with the fact that Rikers is really an inhumane um, jail, all of that combined to me is a systematic structure that um, really undermines people of color. And by the way, as you know, when you have almost uh, nine out of 10 people being black or brown, it is just an enormous problem. So for me, I wanted to come to the legislature and let people know off the bat that I meant business. I believe, you know, a lot of times that comes from, from the private sector where things just happen faster. And so for me, the idea that we needed 10 years to close Rikers was just illogical. Now, I came out and said we needed three, which is probably a little aggressive. But, you know, I, I found in government you'd rather say two and end up at four than to say four and end up at eight, right? Uh, so I really wanted to sort of highlight, you know, some of, the, some of the issues there, and we ended up working on those things. And part of that was, you know, how can we reduce the population in a way that uh, made sense and didn't in any way at all threaten public safety. And we have been working on those issues um, since I've been a senator. But that's why I started with Rikers. Got it. What's coming up? So we got connected because you are a co-sponsor of the no-knock bill. So that's how we met. Uh, but you're also working on the comptroller yeah. bill, which we talked to right. you and your team about. So if you can preview for us, like, what's coming down the pike, that'd be great. Sure. So a few things. Uh, as you mentioned, we have an, a, a no-knock bill. That bill has been reorganized, which I'm very excited about. Um, you know, as many people know, through the Breonna Taylor case, there are situations where there are no-knock warrants that could be 60 days old, uh, in some cases, that are acted upon by police where there isn't some major extreme circumstance to warrant it, right? It's not like someone's in the, the, the murder that, that, that's in the movement happening. It's a terrorist issue. In a lot of these cases, they could be simple potential drug offenses where no-knock warrants are granted. And as far as I'm concerned, those are rife with potential for abuse. And also, if the police find something in the apartment that they feel like they need to take for whatever reason, they can do so, which is a whole separate issue. So for me, one of the things that I'm excited about with our no-knock warrant bill is that it will close some, some of these loopholes to not allow officers to manipulate search warrants and really sort of increase some of the um, requirements around how, when a no-knock warrant can be given. Because, listen, there are times when no-knock warrants are needed, but it isn't the majority of the cases that are used for now. So I have some real concerns about that. Um, that's not my bill. That's a colleague of mine's bill, a senator named James Sanders, but I'm, I'm a co-prime sponsor on that. The bill that, you know, I've introduced and I'm very excited about is a bill that takes a look at uh, settlements as it relates to police misconduct. Uh, right now in the city of New York, our taxpayers are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to settle police misconduct cases. A couple years ago, the number was over $108 million, double what it was 10 years ago. And for me, part of the problem with these settlements is the information that's reported to the general public is very vague, it's aggregated, and it doesn't have some of the key details that you need to, to take a look and say, well, who, how much has been paid to each of these separate cases, who are the named parties, and we really want to make sure that that information is published, right? We want to publicize when there are uh, payments made for legal settlements that involve law enforcement. Like, we need to know what that is, because that's our money. And so this bill will require annual reports from the city controller and the state controller to that end, and um, I feel like that transparency uh, would really help in my view, to change behavior, but also help to bring us uh, to the issue before we end up with a, a George Floyd case. I'm, I'm sure the police officer, a shaman who was involved in that case, 
that wasn't the first time he did something inappropriate. There are probably some settlements tied to him in the past. Uh, uh, we want to prevent bad apples from growing. And I think this bill would, would provide the transparency to do that. What would you say to some of the critics of releasing this? I would say, like, this data should be private, that, like, people got money, that all of it should should sort of be secret, and that the, the Comptroller does release right now sort of the overall figure, and that figure is bad enough that we don't really need to know the details. Well, I would say to them, there are miscarriages of justice, police misconduct that are tied to these claims. And we want to get to the bottom of rooting that out. And it is not okay to say, oh, well, there was a settlement, so let's just leave it at that. No, what we want to do is provide transparency and to find out who are the police who are, are doing these things, if there are patterns that need to be detected, and then to help root those out through transparency. I think that for the bigger system, that's important, right? I mean, I don't think anyone would say that it's okay to allow police who engage in misconduct on a regular basis to continue in their jobs. They should be rooted out. And I think this bill helps to do that. That's better for everyone. That's better for the taxpayer, and it's better for the citizens who have to trust the police to do their job. Now, what about uh, COVID? So it feels like we have staved off the worst right now around the budget crisis, but these budget windfalls are going to hit at some point, and there's going to be a host of hard decisions, especially if Biden and Harris don't come out with a really robust stimulus package or, or recovery package. What are you all talking about when we think about the budget cuts? Like, well, is there a rainy day fund in New York that's, you'll just deplete that now and fill it up later? Like, I don't know. What, what's it looking like? So there's a couple of things we're looking at. One is we're looking at raising taxes. Um, we believe that that's an important part of the solution. We are also looking at cuts, but more cuts that are tied to either things that are no longer relevant in the COVID-like environment or things that were waste that we just don't have the time for. We can delay until later. There's some capital projects that are being slowed down, and there's going to be reviewing of our property taxes, what are the right numbers and the right levels to sort of make the whole puzzle work. So we're looking at every range of solution. Obviously, we are, we are all hoping and praying and, and working hard to win the two Georgia Senate seats. But if for some reason we don't prevail, uh, we have to be prepared to deal with a world where Mitch McConnell has power as well. And so we are actively looking at raising revenue, evaluating which cuts make sense, and understanding that there's more expenses because, as you mentioned, COVID, there's a vaccine that we're going to have to roll out. That costs money, too, and we're not clear on what, how much the, the federal government is going to help pay that. So we're, we're, this is a constant thing we're looking at. What I can say is that we're not going to balance the budget on the backs of the working class, poor people. We're going to make sure that everyone pays their fair share and their shared sacrifice across the board. Like, what should we, as we as we think about sort of this next session, you introduced a bill around technical violations or probation, your co-sponsor in the NONOC bill, you have the Comptroller bill, there's going to be some COVID stuff. Like, how can people, I don't know, is there a way for people to get involved? So if they care about these things, should they call you? Should they call their state rep or house rep? Is it, I don't know, like, should people send, if somebody was like, Senator Benjamin, will you fight about this idea? Should they just email your yeah. office? Should they text you? I don't know. What's the, how do people get involved? If you have a specific thing that really grabs you, the best first step is to find out if there's a group that's already organized on that issue. There are a number of activist groups who have different um, bills and issues that are part of their platforms. Uh, if you engage with them and you're not in love with that operation, then there are other ways for you to get involved. You can help pull some people together. You can write op-eds. 
you can clearly call your legislators, and I'm happy to receive the calls, and we have a team that does that. But, I, but depending on what kind of skill sets you have, you can get involved in the process, right? So, for example, all of our bills are available online. You can Google them. You can find them on LRS. You can, depending on what kind of skill set you might, might not have, you can read through those bills. You can talk to people. I tend to find that those who are more involved in organizing with others or thinking through the content really can make a big difference. Uh, sometimes, you know, we can get a call right before we're going to pass a bill the next day saying, hey, oops, uh, you missed the fact in the bill that there is this thing. And sometimes that happens when you're passing thousands of bills. Not something done on purpose, something that you could always uh, revise later. But I do think there's a lot of opportunities for citizens to do that. We all have town halls, and there are, there are hearings where we have on various bills and various issues. So depending upon whether it's like you care about health, you care about a specific bill, or you just care about who's elected, um, depending on what you're interested in, there are a number of ways to get involved. My office is always available if people want to call and ask questions. Um, we can help guide people and say, oh, are you interested in this? Well, I would recommend that. Um, and my office number is 212-222-7315, or people can email me at bbenjamin at nysenate.gov, uh, and we're happy to help people get more engaged because our government works when more people are involved, more people are engaged. And our local government works better when that happens. And one of the things that happens is people tend to focus more on the federal level, who's president, who's not president. Uh, but what happens on your block, what happens on your street, what happens in your neighborhood is usually governed by the local and city and state representatives and connecting on that level usually makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you so much for this. We can see your friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Perfect. Thank you, d well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. And our special contributor, Janetta Elsie. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.